turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Timothy, the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who was a pastor, and he gives all types of instructions in these letters about how to conduct things in the church. But we have a very intriguing verse that we're going to come to in the second chapter of 1 Timothy. And the Bible says in verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 2, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Now here's the verse that I want you to look at with me. The title of this message is One Way to God. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. In that fifth verse, and there's others, of course, in the Bible throughout even the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, where the Bible claims to be exclusive, not a way to heaven. It's the only way. Specifically, as you would know, Jesus, whom we call the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, is not a way to heaven, but he is the way and the only way. This is the claim of the Bible. And there can be no mitigation on that point. For that matter, there can't be any mitigation on any point of the Bible. But so many preachers today seem to escape the obvious that the people that are sitting in the seats in front of them can certainly figure out by just going home and reading the texts. And I will remind you that what I rely on very heavily in my ministry are two things. Number one, I didn't write the Bible. So whatever a text I'm on, whatever I share with you, other than trying to illustrate what's written, I did not write what is written. Secondly, is the fact that the Bible claims for itself, through its authors and through its writers, to be inspired of God. That God breathed into these 40 men or so who penned the words beginning in Genesis with Moses, ending in the book of the Revelation with the Apostle John. All along the way, the claim is that this is not me speaking, or in this case writing, but God giving me the words and so on to put in the book that we now know as the Bible. You would be well advised, read the Bible daily. It's a habit that's easy, like any good habit, easy to forget, easy to break, easy to neglect, but you don't want to do that. Because I, once again, have predicated my ministry, and there are many others as well. But I constantly remind people these two things. I didn't write the Bible. I didn't write these words. I believe them. And uh, secondly, what is the safest measure for you in any situation where there's preaching, teaching going on in the name of Jesus Christ? is that it must never violate what is contained in the pages of Holy Scripture. And so if you are well-versed in the Bible by simply reading it, you're going to be able to detect errors, heresies, 
and other things related to that for yourself. You're going to be able to see. You're going to have a red flag come up when you hear something that you have been through, and I'll make an assumption because there are some of you here who have many decades in the Lord. A red flag is going to go up because you're going to know that that's either not contained in the Bible or that's a distortion of the text and so on. Read it for yourself. Man, though God used men to pen the words, God gave men the words to put down on the page. Jesus said, Father, sanctify them, pull them out of the world or from the world. Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. That's what we want to know. For me, the longer I live, the more convinced I am that God wrote this Bible. That's for me now. And that's not something that you can easily share. I mean, I can share it with words, but it's not something that I can impart to you on the inside. That has to be done between you and God. That the longer you live, you see convincing proofs, evidence that God actually did write this Bible. And it's a tremendous freedom to be able to know that you know that you know that you know that God wrote this book, the Bible. And furthermore, let me say this, from almost the outset of my ministry many decades ago, my burden and I feel my call is twofold. I've always felt primarily called to America, the country wherein I was born, and I always had a burden for the church. I believe it was just given to me by the Lord. The reason being is that from a young Christian, having been told by my elders or a pastor here or there, read the Bible, read the Bible, I went home and I did. And I've spent my entire life just reading the plain text, back and forth, back and forth. And what I encountered early on as a young man is either a manipulation of a text which at the time being a bit, not so much naive as just being young in the Lord, you always give credit to someone who's been around 25, 30, 40, 50 years as a preacher. So you figure it must be you, you must be wrong. But the longer I lived and the more I studied, I said, no, it's right there, it's right in the text. It tells us the truth. And once again, this is something that God alone can give you if you meet the condition of seeking after him with all of your heart, all of your strength, all of your mind, all of your soul, you, he says, will find me when you seek for me with all your heart, you will find God. Imagine that before we enter into eternity, you can find God here and now and know that God reigns supreme over his universe. And my friends, let me just tell you something today. If for some reason you're not inclined to have that one fact in your life that you actually do know God, when everybody around you, presumably not Christians, but everybody else around you is saying you can't know God, that's for them. But God has told us in the book that you will know if you seek for me with everything that you have. That's not perfection. That's striving for excellence. That's giving everything you've got. And when you do, you come to this great blessing of knowing that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know that God wrote this book. But let me take a moment to give you a caveat about that knowledge. There is also a measure, and I'll use the word loneliness, there is a measure of some isolation and a bit of loneliness when you are giving everything to God to discover truths contained in this book and others are not, and I'm not saying that they don't belong to Jesus, 
But as you try to excel, you're going to find yourself in an ever-diminishing crowd of number of people who are doing this. And I just submit to you, as we see with Jesus with his own apostles, he was often misunderstood. And we see this with the Apostle Paul and et cetera and so on. So that's a caveat, a price that you have to pay for knowing God, for actually knowing God. You'll be talking to people who themselves read the Bible, but for whatever the reason is, they're not coming up with a good conclusion, let alone a correct conclusion of what this book actually says. When we read the verse that we just read, 1 Timothy chapter 2 at verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. With that verse, you believe it and you tell others what it says. You enter into that class of those who are reiterating what the Bible says and are found in a position of contradiction from others, argumentation from others, of which we can offer many convincing proofs that God wrote the Bible. But remember this, no matter how intelligent or convincing an argument may be made for the inspiration of Scripture, that God breathed into the 40 men who penned his words the same way he breathed life into Adam when he formed him out of the dust of the earth. You find yourself in a position that even all the evidence in the world cannot make someone a believer. Jesus said when the rich man went into hell and Lazarus, who was a poor beggar at the rich man's gates, all he ever got was crumbs from the dogs and dogs were licking his sores. Rich man never cared for him. When that man descended into hell and he was torment, which is what we find in the gospel according to Luke, as Jesus is speaking, being in torments, he has a rather altruistic request. When he asks, he says, okay, I'm here, but go and send Lazarus, the poor beggar, to tell my brothers about this place so that they don't come here. Jesus tells us, these are the truths you learn in scripture, that even if someone rose from the dead as Jesus did, they would not believe. Then he points in that illustration, in that story, he points back to Moses and the prophets, which would be for us the Bible. And I'll paraphrase, they have the Bible. Let them believe it. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But here it is. You must obey the directions that come from God's word or it doesn't work. This is pretty simple to understand. Now some of us here in this congregation, perhaps many of us, maybe most, we take medications for different things. But obviously a medication does not work if you don't take it. If I'm given the medication, they're just very diligent about taking it, right time, right dose. But I have friends that will tell me, yeah, well, you know, I was taking it twice a week when the instructions clearly say take it every day. So they go get blood work and they're wondering why things aren't, you know, dialing in the way they should. And sometimes in conversations I've mentioned, I've said, you're not taking your medication the way you're supposed to. Or if you have a trustworthy physician, one that you know is competent, and they give you instructions to follow for your health, to improve it, to regain it, whatever it may be, and you don't follow instructions, why then are you surprised that you're not getting the results that you want? It's just common sense. 
If God indeed did write the Bible and cover so many, many subjects, the most important of all is where you're going to spend eternity. But there are many, many subjects the Bible covers, God covers. Why then do we not apply what he has said? Well, one reason that we don't apply it is because it's difficult. Difficult to be humble enough to admit that you don't know everything or to make an apology. There are some people that I know some personally that cannot get these words out of their mouth. I'm sorry or I am sorry. Can never get them out of their mouth because it's an admission of guilt and with that is the sensations, the physical sensations, as well as the mental processes that brings humiliation and embarrassment, diminishes the ego and so on. But this is what God said of us. Except ye be converted and become as little children, you shall not in any way enter into the kingdom of heaven. And let me just say this again. Of all the subjects the Bible covers, it covers how to do business, it covers marriage, it covers health covers many things. We must be diligent to apply the instructions that lead us on this one way to God. So years ago when my wife and I were getting married and she had purchased her wedding dress from a shop that was in a big building in Manhattan, the day came for us to go and pick it up. So we went down into Manhattan. She was familiar with Manhattan at least familiar with where she got the dress, bought it. Time to pick it up had come and we were there, but we got a little turned around. Now I'm depending on her to tell me where this place is because I've never been there, I don't know. And so she became a little unsure of herself and then before you know it, she said, I think we just passed it. Not a big deal on a Saturday in Manhattan, just, well, I started to make a U-turn and my wife was still talking. She said, no, here, 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 make a left. So without even thinking, I just cut the wheel, made a sharp, hard left turn to go back to the building we just passed, get back on the other side. And before I know it, I'm looking about three blocks down, traffic is moving this way, northward, and here's a cop car with the flashers on coming against the traffic at a fairly good speed. So I said to my wife, I said, look at this guy. Said, Somebody must have robbed a bank or something. <laughs> You know, this was like, it seemed to me a dangerous move. When he came close to my car, it was me. <laughs> and I'm thinking, why in the world? Why in the world is this, these two officers pulling me over? Well, they do. And they said to me, didn't you see the signs? And I said, what signs? <laughs> we were only a block away from where I just made a left turn. And he pointed. And there on the pole, in fact, there was two poles, I don't know how many signs there were. No left turn, left turns prohibited. There must have been six of them, all of which said, do not turn left here. But because I was distracted in conversation about where's the building, I think if we, you know, we go back two blocks, make a left. And I did. And I got a summons, I got a ticket for making a left turn where it clearly said, do not turn left. Now, it's easy to understand that illustration. It's not really difficult to figure out that we often do the exact same things in our walk with Christ, or at least our profession. The words are right here. It says, don't turn left, go this way. In Isaiah, it's phrased this way. This is the way, walk in it. This is the way. 
And you shall hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, go that way, which for us means live this way, live this way. And as many of you know also by experience, that is not always the case. In fact, in my experience, I believe it is the case more often than not with people who profess they're Christians. And this is troublesome. I got a summons for making a left turn where there were, I don't know how many signs, there was a lot of them. All of which said, don't turn left. But I never saw them because I was distracted trying to get to my destination or our destination. There are many voices in the world. All of them telling you to go different ways than what this book says. And I would counsel you as your pastor, do not follow any voice except the voice that comes from this book. And the power of God's spirit who wrote it. And Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And another's, they will not follow. We do not want to get turned around in our walking towards the kingdom. What's worse is this. Thinking that you're going in the right direction and you're not. With a Bible somewhere in your home or a Bible somewhere, perhaps even in your hand. With the instructions being clear. Not easy, but clear. And then you, for whatever reason, are distracted by the teacher on the television or on the radio or over the internet that's saying things that are strange and foreign, if not altogether against what this book says, as they manipulate texts and manipulate, or let me say it better, as they tell you, last night, God spoke to me. And so people, by the hundreds of thousands, believe that God actually spoke to this man or woman who is now contradicting both the tenor and the plain teachings of the scriptures and are leading people astray, even with the Bible. So I say again, read the Bible for yourself, cover to cover. In one year, read every page of it so that when you're standing before a preacher, or one's on television, the radio, the internet, wherever you find them, you have at least some idea of what this book is saying. And the Holy Spirit will help you and guide you. He will never lead you astray. And if you have a red flag that goes up, and you're hearing somebody speak, pay attention to that intuition. Because it may just be the Holy Spirit trying to get your attention to say, no, 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 do not follow that advice. Do not believe that God spoke to this man or woman. And the reason that you'll have is because you have read the scriptures for yourself. You will be, as we read in the book of Acts, a Berean, who even though it was the Apostle Paul who wrote over half of the New Testament, speaking to them at Berea, as he did also to the disciples at Thessalonica, it says the Bereans were more noble. That's the word that's used in our Bible, King James Version. More noble. Let's say more diligent. They were more interested to see in the scriptures for themselves if what the Apostle Paul was saying was true. Be a Berean. Read the Bible for yourself. In this age in which we live, God has made it incredibly, and I'll say simple because simple and easy are not the same terms. God has made it increasingly simple to read or to hear and even to understand with all the aids that are out there today for you, given freely in most cases. To know the Bible and therefore to know God. Jesus said, and this is eternal life. 
that they might know you, the only, only true God. The Bible is a unique book that declares that there's only one God and he's the true God. There's only one. Estimates vary because I don't know that anyone can be precise with how many gods, small g, there are in the world today that people worship or how many there have been from the beginning of time, which is even more difficult to calculate because some of them have passed into history so deeply that they don't even come up in archaeological digs or whatever. But there's a rough estimate out there right now. Listen, there's about 18,000 different gods in the world today that people worship or claim or speaking to them and so on. Yet the Bible says there's one God, only one, not 18,000, not 30,000, not millions. There's only one. And so we come to this book which makes these incredible claims and because of our lack of time, I would have to spend at least one Sunday morning with you to go over evidence. We've done it in our studies over the years, the many years that I've been with you, of evidence that points to a conclusion or let's say a verdict that God actually wrote the Bible. But suffice it to say, this book is unique in many, many ways. And the first thing on the list in my mind is the Bible's ability to accurately forecast the future. You see, when I made that left turn many, many years ago in Manhattan, I didn't see the signs. I didn't see them. It wasn't like I saw them, I took a chance. I literally didn't see them. And what amazes me today, as I talk to people of all different persuasions, so many, many people seem to see the signs, at least some of them. But what I find equally disconcerting is those who profess or have a profession of being a Christian based on whatever they base it on, who don't seem to be able to see the signs as I didn't those long years ago in Manhattan. I simply didn't see the signs. So what I find fascinating is not that people are coming up and saying, hey, there's been an increase in earthquakes. There's an increase in famines. Everything's happening all at once. Wars, rumors of wars, nation fighting against nation, one ethnic group against another ethnic group, and so on, as we read in Matthew 24 and in Luke chapter 13, or Mark chapter 13, and we read these things in Matthew and Mark and Luke of the signs of the times that Jesus said, this is what you would be seeing, those who would be alive, and that's us. This is what you would be seeing, that you would know my coming is very, very close. For me, this is the most important goal of life, my life, that I'm going to meet Jesus and the way things are going so rapidly, it is possible, even at this advanced age of mine, that I may see him before I physically die. Jesus gives us a warning in the parable of the ten virgins. Five kept their lamps their wicks were trimmed, there was oil in their lamps while they awaited the bridegroom to come in the parable. Five did not, and they slept while the signs of the times were all around them and the approach of the bridegroom was very, very close. They were asleep, and then, as Jesus explains it, there came a cry at midnight. 
The bridegroom comes, and notice all ten of them rise, but five of them realize they are not prepared to meet the bridegroom. They were sleeping when they shouldn't have been sleeping. Their lamps were not trimmed. There was no oil. So now they want to go to those, to break down the parable for you, they want to go to those who have faith and basically say, give me your faith. Give me your understanding of the scriptures. Let me have the riches and rewards of your prayer life, but it cannot be given away. So Jesus explains what will happen in that parable. The bridegroom came, ten went out. Five never got to see Jesus, not at least in the way that they'd want to. I don't know that it's precisely half of people who profess that they're followers of Jesus that will not meet him, not in a pleasant way, but it leaves us with the point. Be prepared. You are living in the times predicted by the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus himself, and the apostles of the New Testament. We're seeing all of our signs. Sometimes I think to myself, it's just redundant to come to this pulpit week after week when there's been more signs since I left you seven days ago. If you just take one or two, not so much. But if you look at them all, and they're all happening at once. They're telling us a story. Get prepared. The bridegroom is coming. And where will you be when he does? What will he find you doing or not doing when he comes? Listen. If you want to know why we have so many problems in our country today, I can narrow it down for you. Some blame the media. Of course, everybody blames the government. And you can go on and on and put the blame in so many different places. But let me tell you, there's an easier way, a more succinct definition of why we have the things we have today in America, let alone the rest of the world, is the church failed. The church took pages out of the Bible, so to speak. Preachers to this very day, this very morning, will not speak on certain topics to a crowd of people, the people they may pastor, for many different reasons, such as they won't like to hear this, they don't need to hear this, or coming up with what I'll call an altruistic motive. Well, I don't want to make them any more nervous than they are. Look at truth is not designed to make you nervous, it's to set you free. And you will know the truth. The truth. And the truth will make you free. The truth will make you free. We are not supposed to be afraid of the things that others are afraid of. And if I may add this, I believe so many people are adding up the phenomenon that we're seeing around the world and coming to some correct conclusions that we're in trouble. I told you before, Stephen Hawking came to this conclusion and he had different ideas of what was going to happen to planet Earth. But him and now Elon Musk as well have a solution that we need to get off the planet, go to Mars to preserve the species. You can read educated, well-received, internationally acclaimed physicists and biologists and so forth that understand we're headed in the wrong direction and the planet and then they come up with solutions. But long before they were born, these words came out of the mouth of the prophets, thus saith the Lord and shared with us what is going to happen in the future. The signal indication of God having written this book is its ability to accurately portray the future. Not only here on earth, but in eternity. And you do not want to be one of those five. Jesus said they were foolish. Not just lazy. Foolish. Listen, if it were possible, and it's not, 
But if it were possible to see a bullet coming directly at your head, if it were possible for the eye to catch that type of projectile accurately, you move. But if you hear the sound, it's too late because the bullet is way ahead of the sound. And we need to be able to see our signs. And we need to line up our behavior appropriately according to this book. There is only one way to God. And there's only one God. Amen. Let me read it to you again. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, or men rather, the man, Christ Jesus. If you were raised in a Bible teaching church, I was not. But if you were raised in a Bible teaching church and you've heard these verses before, the problem that you're facing could be you are inoculated. You have a vaccine. You have just enough of the scriptures in you to make you harden to the rest. That behind this, we have the real grace that we sang about a few moments ago that changes us and changes our behavior. Once again, we don't practice sinless perfectionism, but we're always aiming for excellence and always aiming that whatever we do, it pleases God. Whether it pleases men or not is not in our hands. And you can be sure, based on the words of Jesus, your life in Christ will not please everybody. It will not please members of your own family, your own flesh and blood, but you must have enough confidence in the proclamations of this book. You must have enough confidence to live your life in Christ no matter what. No matter who likes or dislikes or disagrees, you must be courageous enough, apply your will to say, I will not deviate. I will live in Christ no matter what the cost. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? This is why Jesus came. He came as a mediator between God and man. And this I'm not going to address because of both time and difficulty in explaining it. But we have gone over it before. Here we have one of many remarks about God being a triune being. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God the Father reconciled by the Son who is also fully God. And then we have the Holy Spirit as well. And as I said, I'm not going to enter into that explanation. Though we have in the past and perhaps will do in the future. In Job chapter 9 verse 33. For those of you who have read it and are familiar with it. Job is tested, fully tested. Brought to a place where he curses the day of his birth. We could call it a suicidal ideation. Cursing the day of his birth. He has so many troubles. Now here's the thing, and you know this, but let's be reminded of it. Every one of his troubles, every single one of his troubles was permitted by God when Satan asked permission to do it. Now listen, you need to gain experience with difficulties or suffering when it comes to the gospel. Because it's your God who says or gives the okay to let Satan test you in a certain way. We cannot be superficial to think there's some type of big rift between God's sovereignty and Satan just running around doing whatever he wants. You read the book of Job? Job is very blessed, but it's Satan who comes and says, 
The only reason Job worships you and sacrifices to you, the only reason he does it is because you've so blessed his life. Take away these things. He'll curse you to your face, which he did not do. But we need to go deep into the scriptures. We've got to stop listening to preaching and teaching that always <clears throat> has a dichotomy between God and Satan as though they're in two different universes and of equal power. Satan just does whatever he wants and God is there kind of mopping it up as we pray and ask for help. It's not so. Satan asked for permission to test you. And certainly he's asked permission to test me. But I am resolved to pass the tests. You see, you remember I told you I was a high school dropout. I'm not now, but I was for a year. I wasn't interested in learning anything. I wasn't interested in geometry or algebra or history, social studies. I just wasn't interested until I went to work at a warehouse for a year while all my friends were going to school and I was there working, pulling orders for photographic paper where I began to see that it's time to go back to school and so I did and the rest is now just part of my history. I wasn't interested. But I'm saying to you that we cannot have a dichotomy. God is over here. Satan is running around doing whatever he wants in your life. And God is just kind of behind him all the time, just sweeping and cleaning. What happens is that Satan comes first and says, let me touch him in this way. You see, your trials are designed precisely just like this suit is designed for my body. Put this on my seven-year-old grandson. Doesn't look good. Don't fit good. Put it on some of you who need to visit the gym and it's not going to work at all. It's, it's just not going to fit. And your trials are designed to take your weaknesses and have you get rid of them and become strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Amen. And I know that you're being tested now. I know that you're being stressed now. And you certainly know that I am my wife, my family. But if we're going to become true men of God and true women of God, we have to pass the test. We can't keep running from them. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. But if you study the life of David, that didn't come easy. It just wasn't part of a scripture memory project that he had in his church. He was tested and you're being tested. But it's God himself who will deliver you. And you'll be able to say again as Job. I'm paraphrasing. Once I'm finished being tested, I will come out as pure as gold. Amen. Once again, who is testing us? God himself. I know this contradicts some modern theology. But distance yourself from that trash. It's not what's found in this book. God tests his people. He always has. But he tests us for our benefit, not his. That we can get stronger and stronger in the Lord. Job is being tested in the sixth chapter, ninth chapter rather, verse 33. He makes this one statement. Neither is there any daysman, which is a mediator, between us that might lay his hand upon us both. So Job is saying here, he has a controversy with God. Why is God doing this to him? God's not answering he has three friends, then a fourth, and then his wife that are all just telling him all the wicked, awful things he's done. And by the way, have you ever noticed that the harder you try to live 100% in the Lord, the more the tests seem to increase? It's not strange. It is what I shared with you last week about it's the normal Christian life. If there's anybody here today and you say, I'm hardly ever tested, I will tell you... Your life in Christ is not normal. 
it's normal when you stand up and say, I stand for Jesus Christ, the way we find him in the book, to be attacked, both by men and by devils, but then endorsed by God and blessed by God. Well, Job was saying there was no mediator. And for us, there is a mediator between us and God, Jesus Christ. I want to further suggest to you that you make your goal, being right with God on a day-to-day -day basis, so that you can enter into eternity and be able to have Jesus embrace you as a victorious soldier. Make that your goal, to do your duty no matter what the cost. Because between you and God, there is a mediator. And a mediator is not the mediator of one, but of two. And Jesus is the mediator that brings us close to the Godhead, the Father in this case. What I'm saying is this. The greatest gift you can ever be given is to know that you are forgiven of all your sins. And that cannot be just a flippant statement when someone says, I know I'm a sinner. Be specific. You don't have to be specific with everybody, but be specific with yourself. What have you done that you know was a violation of God and of his word? And then one by one, if you've not done this, I did this early on in my Christian walk. One by one, I just went through everything I could remember. And of course, there's been other things since to say, God, forgive me. I'm sorry. This is wrong. That was wrong. And God, who's rich in mercy and grace, wants to forgive us. And that is another thing that's unique about this Bible. It never says, now change your life and be good and you'll make it to heaven as other religions do. Here we have a uniqueness in the fact that God freely gives us this salvation, this freedom from the penalty of sin. Freely. It's not earned. Which as I remind you, professing Christian people ought to be the most, well, I will say endearing people to one another. You can look around this room. Now, if you're in the front, you can't do it. You have to turn around to do it. But those of you in the back, look at the people. And every one of us in here had the exact same problem. Every single one. All had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is eternity. But God, who was rich in mercy, reached down and asked us, basically, would you like to be forgiven if everything comes see me? And we said yes. But what I want to say is this. When you look around and you say to yourself, well, I'm not crazy about her. You go to the same church and, you know, I have this issue. Resolve it because you're no better. It was the Pharisee who thought, I'm glad I'm not like him. He don't pray as much as I. He don't give as much as I do. He doesn't do as much around the church as I do. And Jesus said he did not go away justified. But the man beating his breast, as we used to say in the Latin mass and Roman Catholicism, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Through my fault, my fault, my most grievous fault. That's what every true Christian has inside them. Now we help each other and we call out what's wrong, and that's specifically my job, but not with a condescending attitude. We do it knowing that we were no different than anybody else, and in many cases worse. So there is no place in a local church for animosity, who doesn't like who, because you didn't get to pick who comes to the church. Jesus did. We have a daysman or a mediator between us, God the Father. It's the man, Christ Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2 at verse 7, it says, Who, 
being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's our King James Old English. I am that I am. Who do men say that I am? And initially, the apostles initially didn't get it right. Peter did. Jesus would say this in the 8th chapter of St. John's Gospel. Before Abraham was, ego me, I am. And they knew exactly what he meant. Amen. Referencing Exodus 3.14. But who, Moses said to God, but who shall I say has sent me? Tell them, I am that I am. The self-existent one, Jehovah. Tell them, I am that I am. Who is Jesus? Before Abraham was, I am. And he always will be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I am Alpha and Omega. We see that in Isaiah, speaking of God, as the Jews understood him, and to this day still understand him. Then we see the same thing being uttered by Jesus in the book of the Revelation. I am Alpha and Omega, equating himself with God in the Godhead. We live in interesting days, not necessarily pleasant, but interesting. But you who profess Christ, must set your eyes higher than this world. Now, let me hasten to say, if you have a job, you're still working, do your job. Be the best at your job that you can be. In everything your hand finds to do, as we read through Solomon, do it with your might. But above all, be reaching for the kingdom, because it's coming. It's coming. With this, let me share with you If your highest priority is to know God and to know that you are going to meet him, if you know that Jesus talks about a period of tribulation, it's going to be seven years of tribulation, such as the world has never seen in its entire history. It's still brief, no matter how bad. Then comes the kingdom with no end. If you know that, I mean, you truly know it, then this is your priority. In 1912, we all know this great unsinkable ship left the shores of Europe, England in particular, known as the Titanic, unsinkable. And it seems as though it is a bit of irony, at least in my mind, as it concerns the mind of God, that the boasting of it being unsinkable was proven to be untrue on its maiden voyage to New York City. In any case, you know many stories of the Titanic What story you may not know is this one here. On board that ship, of all the people that were there, there was a pastor, John Harper, a Scottish preacher, who was coming here to America to do some series of meetings, which he had done in the past. He didn't know when he got on the ship that he would never be here. And the story is told of one of the men who worked on the ship, George Covell, and he was working on the Titanic, at some point was ordered to get into the lifeboat, George Cavell. John Harper, on the other hand, did not have that opportunity. Couldn't find his way into a lifeboat. And the story goes as related by George Cavell. As they were floating in the frigid, icy waters of the North Atlantic, Harper was calling out to people, are you saved? Are you saved? Cavell was in the lifeboat, Harper was in the water turned his attention to George Cavell, and he said, are you saved? And Cavell said, no. And Harper pleaded with him, be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. No. 
And finally, as Cavell told the story afterward, he said, I was John Harper's last convert. Cavell made it safely to land. John Harper never did. And I wonder how many of us, if we knew we were going to die within the next few minutes, within the next hour, what would we be saying to the people around our bed? Don't worry, we're all going to heaven. Well, if you say that, then you are contradicting what this book says. My friend, if that's your position today, you must reconcile that you are in contradiction to what the book says. I've reconciled it a long time ago. I believe it. There's only one God and only one Savior. And if you were surrounded today by friends, family, whomever, and knew that you were going to die, would you be saying to them, are you saved? I walked into Albany Medical Center many years ago, over 30, to visit a woman who was a faithful member of the church when we were up on the hill. She had had cancer before, but this time she was losing the battle. From my observation and point of view, she had simply given up the will to fight the cancer anymore. So I went down to pay her a visit knowing she was dying. In an amazing way, it brings this story to light with George Cavell and Pastor John Harper. I walked into the room and first thing I noticed was there was this sense of peace. I don't know how many of you have been around dying people, but I've been around a lot of them. And you don't always have that sense. I remember speaking to a man who developed a lung cancer, a neighbor of mine, a professing Christian. And I remember standing there as he rolled down the window, asked him how did the visit at the doctors go? And he burst out in tears, grown man, tough guy from New York City like me, burst out in tears. He was just distraught. He just had a grandchild. I just want to see my granddaughter or grandson grow a little. I just want to live a few more years. So I asked him, which I always ask people, maybe you would say it was obvious what to pray for, but I asked, what do you want me to pray for? Do you want to live? Obviously he did. But you see, I can't stand on my faith for him. He's got to stand on his and I join just like you if I pray for you. Standing on your faith with you. Anyway, he prayed through the tears that he could be spared. Now, there was no sense of peace at all in that conversation I had with that friend of mine. When I went home, I would talk to the Lord, and I'm being honest with you, and I would say, God, I don't have the confidence that this prayer of mine will be answered, but I'm asking you to heal and so on. I didn't have the faith based on what I was perceiving from my friend. I'm not saying he didn't go to heaven. I'm just saying he didn't live. He didn't live very long. Now, I walk into this room decades earlier than that incident, and here's a woman, and I just sensed the peace in the room. And it was very calming. And around her bed was her family, sons, daughter. When I walked into the room, she made some kind of complimentary statement about me. You know, here comes so-and-so, pastor. And she pointed her finger at me. And she says, pastor, you need to tell him and him and him that they need Jesus. Now, the girl was already saved. I did her funeral, and I got to tell him and him and him that the church was so crowded that day that the police had to show up to direct traffic and complaining neighbors who said cars were blocking their driveway. But I got that opportunity. What I'm asking you is this. What would be your last words? Would you be thinking only of yourself? Or would you be saying, Lord, save them? Are you saved? Do you know Jesus? This is the staying power in my life and in my ministry. This, my friends, is what it's all about. What will your last words be? What are they now? I mean, believe it or not, it could be as simple as just handing out 
one of my cards. They may go to the website. You don't know. Some of you know. I was saved by a gospel tract that we have back there. Put it into my hands. Girl never said a word to me. I read it and read it. Time's run out on me here. I can't tell you the rest of the story. I mean, I, I got born again. But interesting development happened. Oh, I'm going to take an extra minute. It's my pulpit. I'll do what I want. <laughs> Decades later, I never spoke to any person from that church that had a ministry on the boardwalk of Seaside Heights near to where we go on vacation. And I went into the church, and God spoke to me as we were going up the steps saying, the young pastor is trying to usurp authority over the old pastor, and I don't know anybody in the church. So I don't have any idea what this means. The young pastor was in the pulpit, not the old guy. I went to see him because he was the teacher. The other guy, you could tell something was radically wrong. So I talked to one of the deacons after the service. And I said, did you know I'm a pastor from upstate New York? Talked about the radio ministry and uh, how God delivered me. If you know my testimony and what he delivered me from. And he was so excited that he said, would you come back and teach the Sunday school? Now, he didn't even know me. So during the Sunday school, I got a chance to teach the people. And to tell them that their ministry was vital, that it saved someone like me with just one gospel track without a word being spoken. And the numbers of people that I had led to the Lord since. Unfortunately, the end of the story is this. This year when we went down to vacation, not only is the church not operative, but the whole building is gone. Condominiums are in its place. My friends, we're in the last days. We need to get our priorities straight. You have to make a decision which I presume you've already made, but I'm just going to exhort you. You have to make a decision whether you actually believe this book or not. There's only one mediator. Only one God and only one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. And we need to tell others. You're sitting here today. There's many people watching by way of our live streaming, live feed. Others listening by way of the radio. The question I want to ask you is, Jesus Christ, your Savior. And ask you if you were a Catholic remember the Greek or Russian Orthodox churches? Or are you Pentecostal, Charismatic? Are you Methodist, Presbyterian? Didn't ask that. Is Jesus your Savior? Jesus Christ, the man, the mediator. And if he is, what are you doing with your life? Let's just take a minute to contemplate that. You may have been raised in the church. Many are. But you still have to make a decision that Jesus Christ is really your Savior. And once again, what happens is you then... Take every word of God as pure, and you take this book seriously, and you follow its instructions and its precepts, no matter what the cost. Believe me, it's cost me a lot personally to serve here in this city, but I'll continue to do my duty till God calls me home. How about you? Where are you today with Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man? In your heart of hearts today, are there some things that you know you need to get right with God? And don't strive after works. That's a huge mistake. That is what the religions of the world do. You better not be praying right now. Okay, I'm going to get up and be a better person. Get up and just believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The gift is given freely. Yet God works through you, refines you, him being the potter, you being the clay. You find that you're changing from glory to glory. So with our hearts bowed in reverence before the Lord, can you answer the question in the affirmative? Yes, Jesus Christ is truly my Lord and truly my Savior. And if not, then do it right now. Jesus, come into my heart and be my Lord and be my Savior. Then you go home and you look in the book for these scriptures. And you read it for yourself. 
And you'll understand a lot of things you may not understand today. Be prepared to be tested. Everyone who comes to Christ is tested. And when you're tested, don't faint. Keep going forward. Father, I thank you this morning. Your book says definitively only you know whose hearts are right with you. Only you know to whom you've given your spirit and the gift of eternal life. My job is to teach it and preach it, but I don't convert anybody. You do the conversions. Continue to pour out your spirit, especially in these last days. Help us to be like John Harper and others that will challenge people when we talk to them. Are you saved? Do you know Christ? Or the Bible says, whatever words you put into our mouths and help us to be what we ought to be in this time, in this day, and in this age. We sang Amazing Grace earlier, but I think it would be appropriate today, I'm not going to sing it now, but just to give God the thanks for the great things that he's done. Father, we do thank you. We do bless you. We do praise you for the good things that you've done for us. And we trust by faith we'll do for others as well. Help us to be the vessel, the agency that you use, the tool, to just simply invite people to know you. What they do is their decision, but help us always to remember what we were before you met us and to be able to share in a humble, loving, caring attitude. Help us, God, today. For you are truly great and greatly to be praised. Pray some of these young people that were invited to this back-to-school get-together also would have the word hid in their heart and grow to know you. In any case, put a hedge of protection around your people. As we go today, wherever we go, you go with us. Remind us this week to love you, not part-time and a little bit, all the heart, all the soul, all the mind, and all the strength, and then doubly remind us to love one another. We give you all the praise and glory for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.